Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 770. Today on Cars Yeah, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to go back and do a replay show of one of my very early guests, Jonathan Ward from Icon. I hope you enjoyed. For those of you who've been listening to all the shows here on Cars Yeah, I think you'll enjoy a replay. And for a lot of you who are newer listeners who maybe haven't had a chance to listen to all 770 shows, you can enjoy the show by Jonathan. He was a great guest. Here you go. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you know the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and the interior, is with a car cover? I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. That's right. 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft has been manufacturing premium quality exterior and interior covers for over 50 years with a stellar reputation for durability and design. They're the world's largest manufacturer of custom patterned vehicle covers that are crafted to fit over 80,000 patterns and growing. They are the only cover I'll put on my vehicles. You can choose from a wide variety of fabrics, styles, colors, and more. From full cover designs for factory to custom-made vehicles, plus convertible top covers, trucks, truck cab coolers, motorcycles, scooters, ATVs, trailers, campers, personal watercraft, and a wide variety of custom features. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark sent you. That's Covercraft.com. What's every automotive enthusiast's dream? to design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage, and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garage is built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage. It's where your dream garage comes true. All right, automotive enthusiasts, I am revved up and very excited to introduce today's very special guest on this special replay edition of Cars Yeah, Jonathan Ward. Jonathan, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Yes, I am. Let's do this. Okay, great. While on vacation in Africa, Jonathan decided to quit his job and start his first automotive brand, and TLC was born. Toyota Land Cruiser's goal was to fill a gap in the market by applying higher quality restoration services to vintage utility vehicles, specifically the iconic Toyota Land Cruiser. The company grew in its reputation for quality, and the acclaim led to a visit from the Mr. Toyota himself. That connection led to Jonathan designing the first three design study vehicles that brought forth the FJ Cruiser. 
And after that adventure, he decided it was time to launch a new brand that he calls Icon. Icon stands for Classic Transportation Design and revisits old-style Toyota Land Cruisers, Ford Broncos, Willys, CJ3Bs, and more. With a multi-year backlog of orders, Icon continues to grow and explore new markets, focusing on reviving America's past, its strengths in design and manufacturing. Take a spin around the Icon website, that's icon4x4.com, and I promise you will fall in love with what Jonathan is doing. So Jonathan, I've told the listeners a little bit about you, so take a moment and share a little more about your history, your business, your interests, and your passion for automobiles. Well, ever since I was a little kid, I remember like being on uh, some sort of road trip with my family in the back of like our 60s country Squire Ford wagon, and I'd always sit in that rearmost seat, one that DOT probably frowns upon in modern times, but that rear-facing fold-out bench. And I always used to see, like, on the weekends, this is in the country in Maryland, you know, long processions of hot rods and heading off to some unknown show somewhere, different classics and different vehicles. And I, I was just always drawn to them. There was, I don't know, as romance is the right word for a five-year-old, but there, there was just a certain romance or mystery to them, the lines, the shapes, the sounds, that just meant something more to me than modern stuff, even at that time. And um, growing up first in the country in Maryland, then moving to New York City, and then moving to California, I always kind of had an eye for design. So that could be everything from a watch or a pen or architecture or furniture, or transportation, whatever. But just was always enthralled with the details and the choices and wondering who made that choice and why. And always had a great respect for the masters of any craft that really seemed to not take any prisoners nor accept any compromise and, and kind of pursue their vision for whatever product it was that they were crafting in, in its sort of optimum or purest form. So uh, when I was 15, uh, I was relocated out to Southern California. After a couple months here, I overheard someone saying you can get a driver's license or at least a permit at 15 and a half. And that was it for me. So I'm not leaving this joint. So stayed in Southern Cal. And um, my dad was always a classic car guy, not to the deep end of the pole that I've put myself in, but always had some interesting ride or another as we were growing up. So just kind of started buying classics and being the geek that I am, taking them apart and monkeying with them and putting them back together again. And used to do the dead stock because that's just seemed like the right thing to do and what people did. But after a while, a couple things, you know, I, I kind of got bored. I got frustrated because even when you'd ask these purists, you know, well, why are we doing it with overspray onto the frame and not 360 painting it? Well, because that's how it was done. Okay, well, just because that's how it was done doesn't mean that's how it should be done. And that sort of corruption, for better or worse, led to me constantly sort of questioning standards and norms and materials or surface coatings or, you know, I in my current work, you know, we, we work, I guess it's not fair to say we work hard, but I just sort of naturally have an open eye. Therefore, things that attract me and everything from architecture to aerospace kind of find their way into my products. So I think our challenge is to create a design where 
there's flow, there's continuity for all these different elements from all sorts of different realms, but create an environment where they all kind of coexist and work together in, in, in fluid form. So take those perversions and combine it with my interest in traveling. And I found that overseas, you know, the more remote the locale, the harsher the terrain, the more people were almost disturbingly devout about their vintage Toyota Land Cruisers. So some places rovers, other places cruisers. But I was in enough rovers on safaris or what have you getting towed out by Land Cruisers. I picked the Land Cruiser team for the most part. But I really started kind of delving into the vehicle and understanding the depth of engineering and design and quality in those vehicles. And when I came back, my wife, who girlfriend at the time, who was with me on that trip, both of us were kind of disenchanted with our real lives, our, our jobs. We're both doing well, had successful careers, but really our hearts weren't in it. Kind of were dreading uh, aging in an environment where we were kind of dispassionate about what we spend most of our waking hours doing. So we took that combined with no brain surgery, but just the simple premise of why is nobody doing the same quality restoration work, care, and attention that they do to whatever, Ford Mustangs, Mercedes, Porsches, to vintage utility vehicles. So there really was no business plan, no SWOT analysis, no focus groups. It was about 30 grand, a couple credit cards, a wing, and a prayer, and the simple idea of let's do proper restoration work to Toyota Land Cruisers. And that was kind of the, the beginning of the brand. And it just took off. We, we never really anticipated that. But I think we're quite lucky because there was a sort of convergence of opportunity and coincidence ranging from the birth of the Internet right at that time, um, Toyota's interest in understanding and expanding upon their own heritage. And I think there had, I guess, been a pretty good-sized pent-up demand for these trucks done right. That story is wonderful because that's exactly what our listeners are thinking about when they listen to CarsYad.com is that entrepreneurial spirit. Successful people that are just thinking, I've got to do this for the rest of my life. I want to do something around my passion. And you did exactly that. And if you look at what has happened now, you were really doing it before things got crazy with these vehicles. And I have a feeling you had something to do with it. When you look at the prices of restored Toyota Land Cruisers right now, it's like what was happening years ago with VW buses and you just scratch your head and go what but there's the demand but you saw that before that really happened but what you're building is something completely beyond a simple restoration and we'll get into that a little bit more but it's a wonderful story and incredibly expiring what we're going to do here jonathan is before we drive further down the road in your journey is to start with a success quote and some kind of saying that's been instrumental in your life, your business, and your passion for cars. And this is a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here at Cars Yeah. So, Jonathan, take the wheel. Mine's real simple. It's three words, and it's my mantra. Respect your perspective. Oh, wonderful. How have you incorporated that into your business and into your life? Oh, gosh, every day and every way. I mean, I think um, I've always looked at people and situations and, and failures and successes in relationships or business. And at the end of the day, you know, we're, our, and I think it's, it's quite predominant in current culture, but has always been an issue. Mankind is always looking for something external upon which they can assign blame or responsibility for a situation they're in. So I think I could probably thank my parents for understanding that. And I've never wanted to be in my own way of succeeding. So I've always been about 
trying to have an open mind, but never to be my own worst enemy because I've witnessed too many great plans and people and empires fail because of that sort of innate arrogance or, or, or misunderstanding of the world around us. So, you know, first when we started TLC, I had that very simple idea. And for whatever reason, I naturally had the gumption to hold that line and, and pick and choose, meaning I think as a brand, we're often very sensitive to whoever calls and whatever they ask you to do, take the job because we're here to make money and keep employees busy and we need that work. Maybe I'm a little dumber than the average. I always know if someone called and I didn't really like the idea or I thought it was a bad idea, I would as eloquently as possible try and say, well, I'm probably not the best guy for that job. Uh, I think you can get served better elsewhere or occasionally try and talk them off the cliff and explain to them why perhaps that approach isn't the optimum and perhaps, you know, get them to change their outlook. But, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, TLC was grown on the standards that we established and our adhesion to those standards. And then that in turn allowed that brand to grow large enough to have the respect and notoriety for me then to do the next thing. So, you know, Icon was, you know, because I've always had a, a much greater love of vintage vehicles, and I have a wildly diverse palette. Um, so as much as I love the vintage Land Cruisers, you know, it would get kind of boring to just kind of be stuck in the confines of that room I had crafted by defining that brand's focus. So on the side, you know, I was doing street rods and classics and all sorts of other things. Since I turned my initial passion into my business, I thought I uh, might as well be audacious and try and do that again. So when we founded Icon, the idea was quite simply vintage transportation design revisited in a modern context. And we defined a certain aesthetic and style. And we've evolved that, of course. I mean, we have a range of production vehicles with the four body styles of the FJ inspired by the classic Land Cruisers, the BR inspired by the classic Ford Broncos, the TR inspired by the 50s uh, Chevy Thriftmaster truck. And then we got into these derelicts and reformers, these one-offs, which are just probably my favorite, probably the dumbest business thing that we do. But um, it's just allowed me to stay fresh, stay creative, stay passionate about what I do and pick and choose and, and not be afraid to, to say no. Um, you know, probably the biggest problem we run into when you speak of specific struggles with that is no one wants to wait. You know, in this modern culture, especially at the price point of my products, people are like, well, yeah, but I have the money. I want it now. And, and I don't work like that because, A, I don't have inventory. They're built to order. And we give people like an estimate of time of what they're, when they're going to be done. But as you know, when you get into restorations, Mark, you can't do that. If you do that, that's great if you're going to send it off to an auction or an eBay and you don't care if it's really right as long as it's shiny and looks good. But, you know, we put five to 800 test miles on everything we build and sometimes trucks are just a pain in my butt. And there can be 30 days of chasing rattles and delays. And one time I gave into a client and delivered. He said, I don't want anyone driving my car. It's my car. It's brand new. I wanted me the first guy. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I listened to him and delivered it. Then we had a failure. Then he was all up my butt. And now I'm like, you know what? It is what it is. Only work with us if you have trust in our ethic, our competence, our vision, and our standards. And if that means I have to delay delivery 30 days, so be it. But I need you to trust that is for a grand reason. If I only want to deliver what I'm proud of, 
or I'd rather set it on fire. <laughs> That's uh-huh. a wonderful answer. And I'm sitting here cracking up, and it makes me think a little bit about Porsche motor cars, because in the older days, every Porsche was taken out of the factory and driven down the Autobahn. And I remember people complaining, I got my car, it's got nine miles. Who's been driving my car? Yeah, wine, wine, wine. Somebody yeah, at the Porsche factory. <laughs> yeah. There's another neat story about that sort of quest for perfection. Uh, Iso, wonderful uh, Italian designer, most publicly uh, known as the father of the BMW Isetta. You know, oh, the yes. Sort of refrigerator front door. Very interesting, very dynamic man. So coming out of World War II, in that time, especially in Europe, it would be fairly common for an auto manufacturing interest to not have designers there would literally be freelance guys who'd show up on the doorstep at best with a scale model, rarely a working model, and they would try and sell you their design. Well, as Soto saw an opportunity that right after the war, the greatest immediate need would be for personal transportation. So we started thinking, okay, motorcycle, trike, moped, something along those lines. And sure enough, some guy came a-knocking on the door. He bought the design, they got it funded, and they were moving towards production on it. And they had a test fleet, and I don't want to misquote, but I think they had about 20 of them. And they already had broken ground on a new headquarter in Italy. They already had ads coming out that very Sunday in the newspapers announcing this new product. Well, he went for a trip into the Italian countryside with his wife for some significant personal situation. It was an anniversary or birthday or some sort. And they've been having a lot of trouble with this design and development. But apparently it threw a rod or something tragic and got him stuck. And he was so bent, but such a purist, such a perfectionist. When he got back to the office, he called everyone and said, okay, Monday morning, bring all the prototypes to the new building. So they did. His team shows up, all the leadership. And he says, all right. Now, in foul Italian, riddled apparently with explicatives, he said, put them in the hole. So supposedly to this day, there's about two dozen of these early Asoto prototype bikes underground in the poured foundation of this building. And he turned around and said, we start over. We do our own design. When it's right, we're ready. We'll deal with the problems. And I just I love that that vision. Obviously, today with shareholders and venture capital and all of that, that's pretty rare in the trans world. But I always had, uh, I always remember that story. It gave me great respect for holding the line. That is an incredible story. I'd never heard that before, and I think there's going to be a lot of listeners going to really smile when they hear that and and understand it because of their feelings. Tell me, uh, Jonathan, can you share a story of maybe that pivotal moment in your life that instigated your passion for cars? That that moment that you really realize I am a car guy. Yeah, I think it would be the extent of martyrdom that I endured with my first vehicle purchase. So new cars bored me. So let's see, I was 15, I was 16 in 1986. Nothing new held my interest other than things that were well beyond my means. And uh, I liked early BMWs. I remember my dad had a BMW before anyone in our county had one. No one even knew what the heck it was. I thought it was pretty groovy as a kid. So some local corner Van Nuys car lot had an early 5 Series sedan. It was a gray market car. And I thought that was super cool. And, you know, you hop inside and just had really distinct olfactory values and just – it was just so above and beyond sort of your production normalcy that you were seeing. So fell in love with the car and bought it. 
And I went through hell with that damn car. I went through everything you can imagine for about a year before finally realizing it just needs to be shot between the eyes and I need to go get something more reasonable. So it turns out none of this was the fault of any of our dear friends in Stuttgart. This was due to the Armenian car dealers' ethics or lack thereof. The car was literally two different cars that had virtually been sort of stapled and sort of buzz box welded into a single car. And this car would crab down the street to such an extent that you could see all four tires from the rear of the vehicle. And I had tons of friends smarter than me with more car experience telling me, oh, no, it's a dud, get rid of it. And I would just, I wouldn't hear a word from anyone. I can fix it. I can dial this in. And probably that experience is also when I learned my own limitations. You know, I'm mechanically inclined. I'm have engineering inclinations and design inclinations, but I bring no degrees. I bring no formal training to what I do. Again, all I bring is perspective. And so many times, especially in this industry, it's like the big car companies are run like an MBA program, not a design-driven product brand company. So, for example, a guy will serve his time in a given division, and if he shuts up, keeps his head low, keeps his blinders on, and doesn't peek out of the cubicle, he dots the I's, crosses the T's, then no problem. He'll get promoted and sent to another department where he adds absolutely no value or insight or perspective. And eventually, he's going to run the company, which I don't get. It drives me crazy. You know, back in the day, like a DeSoto was a DeSoto and not a Plymouth and not a Chrysler because someone had the balls to let that guy, whoever he might be, run that brand, make those decisions and communicate his perspective. And nowadays, I've always saying, you know, I got to talk one of the big car magazines into doing this one day. But I think if you took like the top 30 or 40 four-door sedans, all in black, took all the emblems off, put them in a big old warehouse in a straight line, take a couple hundred people off the street, have them name them. I bet you no one would get better than a D. <laughs> right? Because they're all playing copycat. They're all following one another. Oh, gosh, they're doing well with that. We should do something like that. And I don't know. I just, I think it's so misguided, especially in this country. Am I babbling too much? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm enjoying and I'm sitting here trying not to laugh too much over what you're saying. It's, it's spectacular. <laughs> so, I mean, this country was born on the backs of free thinkers and innovators, risk takers, entrepreneurs, people who questions the way, you know, people who question the way things had been done prior and said, hey, why not do them like this? Either by evolving because of their own, here's that word again, perspective, or for their location, their terrain, their specific usage. And, and you know, where's that spirit gone? We've, we've had presidents tell us, just go to the big box store and buy stuff and we'll all be fine. And I just can't believe that. You know, we've got to get back to respecting the individual's power to make a change, to blaze new roads, to try out new ideas and push the envelope. And there's so many things about our modern culture that are disruptive and do not foster that culture, from education to financial aid to the way grants are rewarded to trademark, copyright, patent law. It's just, it's, it's an abomination. It drives me nuts. So in my own little way, you know, I'm trying to beat the drum of sort of what we call the maker's movement to encourage other people to follow their dreams, to make that widget. I don't care if it's software or a car or whatever it is, but make a difference. Create something you're proud of. And it's just going to build and build and culturally be so much more value than, than where I think we've been heading. 
Amen, Jonathan. And that was incredibly interesting how we took that question and you wrapped it around and went down that, that rabbit hole, but it was, it was spectacular. I want to talk to you a little bit about a big challenge in your career with your business. Kind of get under the hood, get your fingers a little dirty, but share with the listeners a specific event or moment in your business that was a huge challenge and maybe pushed you to the point where you were ready to say, what am I doing? I'm done with this. And not only share that Maybe it was a big failure with us, but then what did you do to pull yourself up out of that and move forward? First off, to clarify uh, to your listeners with these derelicts and reformers projects we do, you know, the the other stuff, the Broncos, the TRs, the FJs, those are somewhat standardized. So granted, there's six to 800 hours of handcrafted labor per unit in-house, but they're all done onto CAD files and every last interfacing subcomponent, bracket and piece, I've handmade, backed up, gotten into the CAD model. And then we work mostly with like regional aircraft manufacturers who have their eye on quality, but will tolerate my pathetically low volume. And they're regenerable. We have that widget and we play Legos and we put it together. On the other hand, the derelicts and the reformers, we, I mean, you never know what the next car is going to be. Like, for example, today in the shop, we're doing everything from an Aston Martin DB4 Zagato GT Barquetta. Oh, my goodness. To uh, a Lincoln Zephyr and a Dodge Power Wagon and 50 Buick Roadmaster, 48 Buick Super Convertible. And, like, it's incredibly diverse. But I did that because I'm a geek. And these opportunities let us learn new things, expand our skill set, our contacts, our network. But they're wrought with issue, and you never know what's going to happen. But I think... Probably the clearest example is after I did the FG Cruiser project for Toyota, originally Mr. Toyota requested that I build one. And they were very kind and generous with the job, I think, because they came to us because they had an understanding that we were really connected with the Land Cruiser buyer. What made them tick? Why such an affinity to such an outdated vehicle? Because, again, in Japanese culture, I mean, they might respect a 65 Mustang, but That'll happen way quicker than they'll respect a 65 Toyota pet Toyota product. They don't, they don't understand it. So, I mean, he's walking around our shop, like shaking his head, like this is ridiculous. These crazy Americans, what are they doing? But they knew that that was very important to the brand, especially to the brand in American and European cultures. So I went overseas and visited a bunch of different Toyota plants and they kind of stayed out of the kitchen, gave me some very simple mandates and I just built it. So then after that first one, when it was about halfway done, they came back, they were pleased, and they said, all right, how about two more variations on that theme, two others that I had proposed that they had originally poo-pooed, but we need them all done in the same time frame. So quite stressful, but we knocked it out and we made it happen. So then what happens is Toyota took all three, they went to the board members, they collectively voted in a little sort of hidden private cave dungeon place they have down at uh, headquarters. They picked their favorite and then they sent it to Calti, which is their California uh, design team, full of highly skilled people. But in my humble opinion, they sort of did what would be expected, I guess, of a modern car company. Like you look at the modern VW Beetle or any of these sort of retro mod sort of, I, to me, they're almost like anime of the original vehicle. That kind of bugged me because I really wanted to realize the original vision that I had. So I went back to Toyota and said, hey, guys, I hope we're not going to get any trouble here. And if you guys aren't cool with it, I'm not even going to try. 
But I have this idea for a new brand. I want to call it Icon. And the closest to my heart is the old FJ40. And, and it's, it's not going to be about saying, hey, look at what a crappy job such and such car brand did back in the old days. And look how cool we are. It's going to be about celebrating the original, but evolving it for modern use. Because anyone who's hopped in a 1960s Land Cruiser and tried to get on the freeway, they're in for a surprise. It's just you're waltzing, and it's just not what it's supposed to be. They're brilliant for what they're supposed to do. But through TLC, I had seen more and more people had a great affinity for the vintage aesthetic, but no connection to the archaic mechanical. So traditionally, like with Land Cruisers, you know, people put a carbureted V8 or whatever. But I kind of wanted to re- revisit that that question, that design question, and how do you take it further? Like, what's the state-of-the-art approach to that? So we got Toyota's blessing, and they said go for it. And we started right away. So by that point, already in my sick little mind, I had basically like a rotatable 3D CGI model of what I was envisioning. So similar to the three I built for Toyota, but without any of the mandates from Toyota, more just me purely, that great material I saw at the Museum of Modern Art on their outside furniture. That really cool metal I saw in the elevator in Chicago at the the Playboy headquarters. Like input and elements from things that stuck with me. And I modeled the car in my head and I I literally had it probably 98% realized in my brain before I took a wrench or a torch out. Then I took a private section in the back of my shop and I built that first truck in its entirety without any assistance, just built it. Then I went back and I added up what it cost. Uh oh. And I said, I'm an idiot. This is never going to fly. And that was one of those moments where I went, okay, you've had your fun. TLC is a neat little brand. You're, but that's, as far as you're going to be able to take this sort of idea, you know, no one's going to spend that kind of money for an old custom yada, yada, yada. And I, I literally kind of froze for about two months because I didn't know what to do. It was either compromise, don't use a LS modern aluminum fuel injected best engine I could source. Don't use the best axles, the best everything. You know, go disc drum, go carbureted cast iron, go with a rebuilt old school crash box instead of the best one that I could source. Paint it, don't powder coat it, cut, 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 cut. And I was really struggling with that because I knew like in, in my soul that that's not how I pick. And if I did that, I would suck at it. I could never make it a success because I didn't truly believe it. So I don't know if you've ever heard of there's there's a great business writer from the early 1900s named Napoleon Hill. Oh, of course. Okay, so you know Napoleon Hill, amongst other things, speaks speaks of a master alliance, which I am a firm believer. For those that don't know what we're talking about, Napoleon Hill basically was hired to write a book by I believe it was J.P. Morgan originally. That the goal of the book was to inspire the everyday man to get this country out of the rut of the depression and to move forward and succeed by studying it at, and at length. I mean, it took him, I believe, over a decade to do his research. What makes Henry Ford or Thomas Edison or J.P. Morgan or Rockefeller, they're just people like the rest of us, but what makes them different? 
And the book was all about that. And I can't say I really learned anything new or anyone else would, but it lays it out in such a clear and orderly fashion that it sort of reinforces those foundations. And one thing is this master alliance concept, which is to always have an open mind and seek to surround yourself with people. And this doesn't have to be on staff and this can be in your personal life because I think any successful business life, personal life, they're all commingled, at least in my case, because my wife's my partner in business. Um, but to, to create a, a, a sort of a black book, let's say, of resources of people whom you have a great respect for their unique values and skills and successes. So one of the earliest people that I noted to be in my master alliance is a gentleman named Mickey Drexler. So Mickey's not really a household name, but he is a legend and a god when it comes to branding. So uh, Mickey, for example, grew Banana Republic, Old Navy, and The Gap uh, enormously up until recent years. And then he divested out of there and then um, now runs J. Crew and has been responsible for the tremendous turnaround of J. Crew and as well as their celebration of craftsmanship and niche purveyors. So I called Mickey up. I said, Mickey, what do I do? I explained it to him. I said, you know, this darn thing's going to be six digits, and here's what it took to build, and, and I'm really, I'm stuck. And Mickey, and his, you know, is the kind of guy he doesn't, if he has to think, he'll call you back, but I don't think he's ever done that. It's like, <laughs> boom, immediately he goes, no, you're an idiot. Stick to your druthers. <laughs> you're an idiot. Okay. <laughs> Love him. Stick to your druthers, stop whining, build it, and they will come. Now I am all about furthering that stupid <laughs> advice to anyone who listen to me and don't like try and create something that fits into a perceived market or, you know, for example, like what am I going to do? Open up a tire shop and go, okay, well, the used tire guy down the street, he sells used tires for 20. Okay, well, I'm going to do it for 18. Well, then what happens? Then the next guy or he goes, well, the hell with that. I'm going to do it for 16. So you're in this dying, non-supportable business model that's just going to screw up inevitably. And sometimes I look at big car companies and I think when they stand up at their annual shareholder meeting and this year we sold 7 million cars and next year we're going to sell 7.2 million. And like, it's a false prophecy. This is not sustainable. So Mickey helped me understand that as a failure in a root business model combined with my personal priorities of pride in what I do, encourage me to stick to what I'm doing. In fact, Mickey even bought that first truck, bless his soul. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I brought it uh, to market, and we have just been honored that we built this market. I mean, it didn't exist, and people, you know, I think were ripe and ready. And it's interesting, too, because not just the consumer – was ripe and ready to embrace this as sort of a new offering and a product with more story and passion to it. And they believe and understand and support that story. But even the suppliers, which I never thought about. So now we're, we have amazing partnerships and collaborative efforts with suppliers ranging from core automotive like Fox Racing and Borla and Ford and GM and on and on and on to companies like Nike and Apple and fashion brands. And, and it's just, I think that if product is imbued with passion and perspective, it, it's, it speaks loudly and it has legs. And, you know, if, if, if people know my brand, even if I never get wealthy from it, but in 20 years or 30 years from now, if someone sees an icon and knows what it stands for, my job is done. 
And that's one thing that I'm so stoked about in the short time that Icon has existed. How many people know the brand and more importantly, know what it stands for? blows my mind because I mean, we hardly advertise at all but i think that our our consumers have literally become ambassadors because that story is so direct and for better or worse all the way through to my youtube channel with the crappy production values and everything else it's my language it's my perspective it's my opinion it's not for everyone but that's kind of the wonderful wonderful stories and i believe the book you're talking about Think and Grow Rich. Yes, sir. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful book. In fact, my son is uh, just starting his junior year, and last year he read that book. I sent it to him, and he just went went crazy over it. And I talked to so many entrepreneurs that use that as guidance for how they conduct their business. And you really answered the next question I was going to ask you already, and that talks about an aha moment. I believe that conversation with Mickey was the aha moment for you. When you realize, I've got something here, I'm going to create it, I'm going to move forward with my gut, and that's what you did, and that's phenomenal. You also answered this next question already. Maybe we can evolve into it a little bit, and that was, what was your first car? And you talked about that first car, but maybe you can share a, a short little quippet on uh, modifications or adventures or memories with that car. I interviewed Dave Bowman the other day, talks about how he modified his first car the second week he had it by tearing the nose off of the car by running into somebody else. So hopefully your story is a little more tame than that. Not really. Oh, so <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, after a, uh, a trip to, uh, gosh, where did I go that time? I think I was in... I think I was in I was in Australia. So came back and said, All right, enough of this. I'm seeing these land cruisers in every orifice of the world. I'm gonna get me one. So I bought a FJ forty and again, not leaving good enough alone as is my nature, I started geeking out. I started taking it apart. And at this time, this was still technically a hobby. I was sort of interning uh, at various shops. And I was investing in a couple different shops as well, basically just fund my addiction with cars and further justify them. But that's another story. But there, there were a couple people that I worked with. Um, there was a wonderful old uh, machine shop run by an old guy who was a genius with flatheads. It was called Motor Ring and Pinion. And they're long since gone. But we had a mutual friend and we made a deal that I could use the shop facilities if I basically cleaned up the mill and the lathe and the decking board and swept the floors and kind of shut up and listen was the mantra. And I did just that. And same with Tony Nancy, who was an incredible legendary car builder here in Southern California. It did like Dean Martin's rides and all that cool stuff back in the day. I would do the same sort of clean the floor, shut up and listen deal with him. But with this machine shop, I started to think I knew what the heck I was doing. First mistake. So, you know, these old Land Cruisers, they're I don't want to put a Chevy in it. You know, I was still considering that a sacrilege at the time, but got to be a way of getting more power out of this Toyota motor. And as well, you know, I knew some of the history and everyone says how similar they were to the uh, GM motors at the time. So me and all my brilliance, I, I went to the gentleman that owned the machine shop and said, Ron, what are we going to do here? You know, I'd like to bore it out and put a hot cam in it. Maybe deck the head, shorten the stroke and geek out. So all that went surprisingly dandy. But then the very last thing was I found in my cleanup efforts a, a clamp for a distributor hold down from like an old 216 or 235 GM straight set. I was looking at the design of it and it had this cool kind of butterfly nut. So you'd have to pull out tools and if you're a lazy man, you could just twist it, loosen the distributor and adjust your timing. 
So in my exuberance and stupidity of youth, I thought, well, gee, Wilbur, that's quite similar to the Land Cruiser motor, so I'm going to use that on my motor. And then as I'm getting it dialed in and tuning it, once I get off of the dwell meter and I'm driving it, I can just pull over and tweak it as I go, and I'll set it up really good, which was a grand idea, except for the minor fact that the Toyota one had a little notch that assured that as the oil pump was spinning at the base of the distributor, the distributor would not walk itself slowly towards the sky. So after about my third hot lap and rotation and really got that motor right where I wanted it, sure enough, distributor came up that last little scooch of Micron or what have you, and I seized that brand new motor. Oh, no. <laughs> so lesson learned there. Lesson learned there. That didn't pan out too well. The next question I have for you, Jonathan, is there a car that you've sold that you have some serious seller's remorse about? Wish you had that back. Well, on, on merely financial terms, yes, and the list would be too long because we very quietly have had sort of a subculture that respects the value of these vintage Land Cruisers for many years. Suddenly at the Big Bear Jackson and Rick's events and stuff, they're pulling six figures, very public sense. So a lot of the cars that I've sold over the years, I want back. You know, we sold an FJ40 with 1,200 original miles, and it's priceless. What I sold it for is irrelevant. I want it back. But if we avoid money and we just talk story, I I had a car, and I actually had to sell it when I was starting TLC to fund TLC, and it's a very little-known, extremely rare model that no one really gives a damn about. It was a 1966 Mercury Monterey referred to as an S55. So in prior years, S55 was buckets, console, mild trim package on meteors and other models. But this one, it started, they made coupes for California Highway Patrol as a sort of pilot program. And they were running 427s in them. They're super cool. But then they made a series of them in convertible form and even lower numbers. Well, back in the old days, the recycler was the hot ticket for finding stuff. Today's Craigslist. And I responded to an ad in my town. It simply said, 66 Ford convertible run. Being a romantic fool, I was curious as all hell and figured maybe it's a Mustang or whatever. Called the guy up, went to check it out, fell in love with the owner. He was this older, shall we say, extremely flamboyant gentleman wearing a ostrich boa when he met me at the door, who <laughs> used to be a designer at Ford. And he actually, and he showed me sketches and early work, he was on the team that designed this car. So he started telling me the whole story, which really boggled the mind of why the ad was so big. But he said he doesn't, he didn't, he had a friend, neighbor, whatever, do it for him. So the car needed a lot of work. I bought it. I dialed it in, restored it, did it just dead stock because of the, the significance of the history of the car. And I had to let it go and I started the company. And I'll tell you, I have only ever seen one other one for sale and it wasn't anything to the extent that that car. I mean, that car had power trunk, power mirrors, power seat, buckets, console, 427, C6, disc brakes, power top, power steering. It was this kick-ass kind of gray-green metallic, black top, black interior. And it was a monster. It was so fast. I always missed that car. I wish I had it back. And one other one, and coincidentally, another Merc. Uh, when I was courting my wife for her birthday, I built her, uh, one, still one of my favorite oddball cars, a 63 Monterey Breezeway two-door with that inverted rear window. Really cool car. Great mid-century piece. 
The very night I gifted it to her, Ventura Boulevard, we get rear-ended by a uh, drunken individual in a Bronco 2, which I hate Bronco 2s to this day. <laughs> uh, and I guess drunken individuals driving, for that matter, totaled the car. I, I got out of the car in the middle of six-lane road and sat on the floor and cried like a baby. Oh, goodness. Well, thank you for sharing those with us. Jonathan, is there a current project that you guys at Icon are working on that really has you fired up and excited right now? Oh, boy, you need a longer show. Uh, <laughs> only uh, one. You just you can only give me one. Only one? Only one. Okay. All right. So this is this one's crazy, and it's uh, taking forever and driving me crazy. All right. So 1959, David Brown decides he wants to compete at Le Mans. He starts by taking his newly created DB4 GT at a hotter motor than prior models, relative speaking, and went with a friend of his, this story goes, and they raced around the British countryside during the winter, kicked the Aston's ass, not even a race. So the guy said to David, he said, you know, the only way you stand a chance of being competitive, given your resource limitations, you can't back up and redesign the chassis and do a hotter motor and all that. Only thing I think you could do that can make it competitive is you need to go to Italy and have someone build you a Superleggera, a lightweight race body, then you stand a chance. So David Brown does his research. Zagato was the shizzle at that time, right? So he calls up Zagato. They put the call through to the transportation department. 21-year-old, I think, guy, dear friend of mine now, gentleman named Ercole Spada. It's a wonderful book coming out on Mr. Spada here soon. Spada is the design chief. He answers the phone. He's blown away. He's been on the job for under a couple months. Nothing much has been cooking. First serious call is David Brown. Oh, my goodness. So they end up working together, and this car is commissioned, and this becomes the legendary car we all, all us car geeks know as the DB4 Zagato GT. One of my favorite cars. Now, what a lot of people do not know is that for homologation law at that time, you had to build 20 road-going examples. Well, there was, shall we say, sparks flying and uh, personality conflicts, probably the most polite way to put it, between Mr. Sagato and Mr. Brown. By car 18, they no longer would work with one another, be in the same room together. They actually falsified documents for cars 19 and 20 to get into Le Mans, but the cars never even got built. Well, in the meantime... Not really knowing all this drama, Mr. Spada, on his own time, is sketching variations of the car because he's just, his, his heart is in it. So he's doing a shooting brake wagon. He's doing a convertible and different variations, and none of them ever got built because of that argument. So one of my blessed clients says he wants a reformer. And the reformer, by definition, you know, vintage aesthetic, modern mechanical, restored as new and correct to the era visually, although we do take liberties with knobs and details and materials. Usual Q&A with a client. What do you like? Where do you live? What new cars do you have? We start focusing in. I realize he's an Aston geek. And I said, oh, my God, I, I'm a major car book buff. And I just picked up a book at Auto Aero Books, a couple of them, actually, on Vintage Aston's. And I uncovered that story. I said, oh, my God, well, this is what we have to do. We have to build the DB4 Zagato GT Barchetta that never got built because of this fight back in 5960. So the client greenlights it. I try and find Mr. Spada. Chat rooms, I talk to Aston Martin North America, different people. And I let people like, oh, no, he's dead or he's senile, whatever, forget about it, can't find him. No one knows the sketch. People start saying, oh, that sketch, that's a folklore story, it doesn't exist, so I give up. I literally go on eBay, buy a model of the coupe, sit in the backyard on weekends, and modify it and start doing sketches. Introduce a series of sketches to the client. Client greenlights the job. A week later, I'm talking to another client. 
sharing my excitement. He goes, oh, why didn't you tell me? Mr. Spada was just at my daughter's wedding. He's a good friend. Oh, you're kidding. So he goes, can I show him your drawings? And I'm like, e certainly. So long story, somewhat shorter, shares the drawings, comes back to me. Wonderful, charming man. He says uh, in broken English that two had been built thus far, neither of which he had had any say in, both of which he felt were downright abominations. He's an older gentleman, and he said, before I die, it's my dream to see this car realized. Would you please humor me and let me work with you on this project? Oh, my goodness. What a dream come true. You kidding me? Right. So I literally threw away all my sketches, went back to the client and said, game change. Sorry, this is what we're going to do. Client dug it. He said, great, no problem. And then I've been back and forth to Torino, Italy ever since. Um, the body in white's almost done. We did the chassis with Art Morrison. We bought a new Aston Martin for the V12 and electronics and a couple switches. And uh, we hope to have it done and on the lawn at uh, the manufacturer's lawn at Pebble Beach next August. If oh, I, I cannot wait to see it. What a wonderful story. That's just spectacular. And how fortuitous that you ended up meeting Mr. Spada. That's just so cool. Boy, you are a breath of stories here. What a wonderful time I'm having. What's your favorite way, Jonathan, to spend time with cars? Is it probably building them, but driving them, cleaning them, wrenching on them? You know, it's gotten to the point that I'm kind of an office stiff. Uh, I have 30-some employees, many of which have skills well beyond what I've been able to hone on my own. And as the company's gotten larger, it's become more important for me to run sort of advanced direction and design and sales and marketing and communication. And I think at this point, although I'll come in on the weekend and tinker and do my own builds and, and I need, I think nowadays my favorite is the hunt. In the initial design phase, sort of inception, getting clarity on the vision, and then the first drive when it's done, realizing it, experiencing it. And then I think at large in cars, because I have a wide range of cars personally, so to me it's about time and place. I like to be able to get into a vehicle and leave the rest of the world behind and let that vehicle, both its capabilities as well as its physical environment as defined by the design or the era of which it comes from to sort of get me out of my own head and to enjoy that moment and that sort of man and machine relationship. Great answer. I love that. Jonathan, we're going into what I call the last lap. It's the last part of our conversation. And this is where I fire off a series of questions and you give me and the listeners some what I call quick blips of the throttle answers. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, here we go. What is the best automotive advice you have ever received? If it doesn't flow, it can't go. <laughs> I like that. Thank you. Awesome. Can you share one of your personal habits that you believe contributes to your success? Well, at this generation, I guess there's a lot of anachronisms going around. I've never been officially diagnosed with any of them, but I have been accused of being somewhat obsessive compulsive when it comes to details. Uh, yeah, I think that fits. So we'll just leave it at that, okay? <laughs> Do you have a resource that you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh, maybe a website, suppliers, restoration shop? Well, yours, of course. But some kind of resource you'd like to share with the listeners? that you found very valuable? Yeah, two of them. Auto Aero Books in Burbank, California. Literally like the last of the Mohicans, old school bookstore. Husband and wife, dear friends, wonderful place. They've been there, I hope I'm not wrong, but I think since like the late 60s. Any book on anything with a motor in it, or even gliders knowing them, they've got it. Out of print, in print, foreign language, you name it, they've got it. The other one is for anyone who builds anything that needs to connect things together, McMaster Car. 
we couldn't live without McMaster Car. And if you guys don't know who they are, and I'm not a paid sponsor or endorser, every possible variation of the hinge, bracket, plug, bolt, wire, you name it, incredible catalog, stupendously fast service. You're going to pay dearly for all the aforementioned benefits, but genius, and it's master.com. Awesome. Okay, wonderful resources for our listeners, and I'm sure they're going to be so happy that you shared that. And that's a nice little segue. Is there a book that you've recently read that you really enjoyed that you could share? Yeah. Can I say two? Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's an incredible design book that anyone who makes anything that they put out into this world must read, and it's simply called Cradle to Cradle. And without getting too wordsy, as I know I seem to have a skill for It basically says we traditionally design products with a cradle-to-grave life cycle. This encourages people to rethink design and the processes of manufacture to create something that is sustainable and regenerable forever. So it's cradle-to-cradle cycles of service as a product. The other one is a business book called Built to Last. Of course, yes. Differentiating great brands from good brands and really clarity of vision. Wonderful. And I'm going to buy that Cradle to Cradle book for my son. He's currently starting his junior year at RISD in industrial design. And that sounds like that would be an excellent gift for him. It's probably required reading for him, but show him how cool dad is by beating the teacher. I'll do that. Okay, Jonathan, we're at the last leg of our trip and our journey here, and it's just been spectacular. I like to call this the checkered flag. And this question can sometimes be a challenge, and I have a feeling it may be for you to quote a great automotive mark. It's a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage, and this is something that you can't sell to buy other cars with, you've got to keep it forever, what would it be and why? See, again, you're mean. You only let me choose one. And <laughs> like me, that's, that's literally impossible, but okay, I'll, I'll shut up. Well, this, this isn't real life. This is just a discussion. 1938 Dubonnet Hispano Suiza Zena. Oh, well, that was easy for you. That was too easy for you. No, it wasn't. I have a long list that stays at the top of my brain, but I didn't want to, you know, I'm following your rules, man. So I had to pick one. Okay. Well, Enrico's Bentley, the voice song, aerodynamic coupe, uh, (laughs) or the Talbot Lago, or uh, the Cord, or the Auburn, or the Studs, or the Doozy, or anything else. Well, next time we talk, I'll say top five favorite cars, okay? I'll cut you slack. Jonathan, listen, you've taken us on a fantastic ride. I've so enjoyed this conversation and your stories, and I want to thank you for sharing this. If you would please give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before we drive off into the sunset, and then let them know what is the best way to learn more about your business, and then we'll say goodbye. Well, I just simply think don't don't get mired down by convention or segments. You know, like in the car world, all the tuners or the rat rods or the street rodders or the Porsche guys or whatever. We're all one big happy family. The the wider of an embrace you can have as in all things in life and the ability to appreciate, you know, like art is an opinion. All art is an opinion and you just have to respect the opinion, not the art. What I would put out in this wonderful world and and back at you, by the way, kudos to you, Mark, for what you're doing here with this show. Uh, I think encouraging and, and, and filling people with passion is, 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 is a wonderful, wonderful mission. So hats off to you for that. Uh, anyone has further interest in me and my antics here, the Icon website is icon4x4.com. The TLC brand is TLC4x4.com. 
com, and I'm readily accessible and here to help. Thank you for your kind words. This whole concept of Cars Yeah is really our mantra is inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and there's a double entendre there. We not only hope we're inspiring automotive enthusiasts, but we're talking to people like you who are inspiring automotive enthusiasts. So this has been a, an incredible talk, and I want to let our listeners know everything we've talked about will be on Jonathan Ward's show notes page on carsyear.com and you can just uh, go to the search bar type in Jonathan Ward and you'll find his show notes page you'll be able to listen to this conversation download it it'll also be up on iTunes one last question for you before I thank you for being so generous with your time where did the lizard on the grill of the icon come from a trash can (laughs) okay here's another story I have to know because how you and I originally met was I tried to buy just that lizard from you and you said oh sure you can have it but you've got to buy the whole car yeah he's gonna have a truck on his butt I was gonna buy it for my wife where did the lizard come from Well, the original lizard I actually found when I was buying somebody's uh, dilapidated Land Cruiser, and they were cleaning out the garage, and the Land Cruiser was part of that effort, and there was a pile of debris out on the curb by the trash cans, including an old fireplace screen. And I saw the lizard on the screen. I thought he was real, realized he wasn't. He was a really nice vintage brass sort of sculpture. And I said, you throwing that away? And the guy said, yeah, I said, you might have to have it. And I took it. And for many years, he would go on my different mechanical proclivities, sort of as a talisman or omen. And I'd put him on each of my cars and take him with me on all my adventures. And then when we started growing the Icon brand, I had noticed that when you're out on the trail, you're for buying and you're well beyond where most vehicles can make it. And let's say it's just you and your Icon. The only other thing that's going to be scampering around on the rocks is the California blue-bellied lizard, which is what he is. That seemed to be close enough to logical to make him viable as uh, as our guy. So That's wonderful. We still make him the way that original one was made. We used lasers to reverse engineer him, but then we went back to the 1800s lost wax uh, cast brass technique, his craft. That's wonderful. Well, I grew up in Southern California. I used to catch those all the time. That's a great story. Jonathan, thanks for being so generous with your time and expertise and sharing what is just a wealth of wonderful stories. We could go on and on, and I have to have you come back on the show sometime so we can talk some more. So until we do talk again, we'll see you down the road. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people, but what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. <laughs>